Okay, we'll be starting in verse 15. I'm going to read it through. Why don't you follow along with me and we'll pray and get into it. Luke chapter 18 from verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Oh, Father, thank you just so much that we get to be together in this place this morning. Thank you that we can have this freedom to meet like this. Thank you for how your people consider it so important to set aside this time, Lord, to sacrifice, not just a part of our lives to be together, Lord, but we see 
the true benefit of spending each and every moment with you. And we pray that this time in your word, Lord, the time of worship that we've had, Lord, the time of fellowship uh, to come would all be such, such a great encouragement and boost to our faith, Lord. Please help us to see what it looks like to live in your kingdom, Lord, how you're inviting us in. We do want that kind of childlike faith, Father. And we ask you to just illuminate your teaching and your word to us by your Holy Spirit with this time. We pray you open our ears and our hearts, Lord, make us receptive to what you're saying, to who you are, and would you refresh us by your spirit to be reminded of just what you've saved us from and to. Thank you that it's all your grace, Lord Jesus, and we just trust you for everything uh, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, was, was there something, was there a group or a bunch of people or a society or something that you wanted to be a part of but never quite made it into? Um, a sports team, a particular group of friends or something like that. When I was um, first at UEA, there was all, on all manner of sports groups and society groups, and I remember going around each of them to figure out which one took my fancy. And I played a bit of golf before, so I approached the golf table and said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to play a bit of golf. Can I join the society? And they said, well, do you have all your own equipment? You've got all your own clubs? Do you? What's, what's your handicap? How often have you played? How good are you? And I was just immediately very scared off by all these professional-sounding questions. They seemed very serious and committed, and I never did join. I never did go. They had such high entry requirements. I don't know how they ever got any new people who weren't that good. But it put me right off, and um, it's, it was something that I wished I could have been a part of, uh, but didn't feel good enough, didn't feel like I could become, become one of them. What we're going to be looking at today is how Jesus invites us into relationship with him. What does it look like to be with him in the kingdom? And because it is a relationship with him, Jesus gets to set those standards. He gets to set those entry requirements, and we're going to see who uh, responds rightly to him. We're going to see children, we're going to see a rich man, and we're going to see a blind man. And we're going to see what kind of heart action Jesus is producing in us as we stay in relationship to his kingdom. Now, this is a really interesting section. I really enjoyed studying it and preparing for it. Um, don't see the Bible or don't see Luke as a collection of perhaps disjointed, random stories about Jesus. There really is a flow of thought. There really is an intention behind the way that the material goes. You, if you were uh, here last week or you can catch up online, John took us through the earlier part of chapter 18 of Luke, the parable of the persistent widow. She had a faith that just wouldn't quit. And we also had the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, what it looked like to come before God in humility, uh, begging for his saving compared to the tax collector. Those are actually two really important parables that frame and set up the real-life examples that we're going to look at. The people we're looking at, children, rich man, blind man, and sadly, I don't get to cover it, but you can look forward to this next week, Zacchaeus, that famous tax collector, they're all four stories which are kind of the real-life outworkings, the real-life examples of people who are persistent in prayer, humble in prayer, and the right way to respond to Jesus and his kingdom. So let's look at our first one, shall we? What does it look like to be invited by Jesus with a childlike 
faith. We read in verses 15 to 17 again that they were bringing infants to him, that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So Jesus is preaching along the road, crowds coming to him. It was quite common for parents to bring their children for a blessing from the rabbi uh, when they were particularly young. Let's not think of the disciples um, being overly mean or harsh here. They're not just um, being abusive towards these children. The, the, the disciples knew that Jesus and them were approaching Jerusalem. We'll see that in the next chapter. Jesus is now very close to the end of his mission. And we all know what happens in Jerusalem. He dies and comes back to life, as he foretells later in our section. The disciples really were just trying to spare him the extra burdens of his ministry. They could visibly see how tired he was getting, how anguished he was getting at all the suffering around him and the suffering that was to come in Jesus' life. So they were trying to give Jesus that space. They were trying to make sure Jesus could minister to those who needed it most. But what did they misunderstand? You see, in verse 16, Jesus calls the children to him, saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is a really beautiful picture of the father heart, the parent heart of our God. This is why we call ourselves children of God, because he has time even for children. He has time even for those that society may consider not as important. Is that how you've been feeling in this week? Is that how you've been feeling in the last few months? A bit like a child, a bit like someone who doesn't have much value, someone who doesn't have much worth, who can't contribute very much, people that, someone that other people look down upon, they don't think you can do very much. Well, Jesus says, that's the exact type of person that I want to invest in. Come to me, I want you for you, not what you can do, not whether you feel like such an important, great person, but even the children, I want to spend time with them. But even more amazing than just Jesus and God being available to those of us who feel a little bit on the edge. There's an extra bonus promise here, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So one step further, what an interesting challenge, but what an amazing promise. What does it mean to be childlike then? Is that something that we should pursue and, and look for in our own hearts? What does that look like? Well, you should see a short list I put together coming up on the screen, just some of these redeeming qualities, these lovely things that we see about our children. Um, when they're still so young, they seem so innocent, don't they? They have so much more uh, fun. Uh, celebrations, birthdays, Christmases, they're made so much more exciting, aren't they, with our children um, around before Adults just grow up and chat and have coffee. How, how boring. Kids actually play and have so much wonder and amazement in their eyes and in their little hearts. It really does bring a youthfulness back to our own uh, lives. Uh, but not just um, in, in, their, in their fun and their wonder. They really do have a deep trust and dependency, don't they, on whoever's bringing them up. They, they look to their carers. They look to their parents with... Uh, total and complete dependency and trust. They believe and they love that those looking after them will make sure they're cared for, will make sure they're looked after. They don't really have a choice. But when parents are taking their children on a journey, the children do believe that the parents know where they're going. The parents have the uh, journey 
planned out and they'll get, they'll get there safely. That is such a wonderful reminder of how much trust and faith and dependency we can have on our Heavenly Father who has our entire lives planned out from beginning to end and he'll get us there safely. They also have a humility, don't they? Um, a bit like John looked at last week, the, the, t- the tax collector who was able to come before the Lord and say, actually, there's not much good that I've done or can do. I just need you, Jesus. I just need you. And that's the same way that our childlike faith can be working itself out. Jesus shows us our deep need for him. Now, I struggle with this. I don't know about you. We're told by our society, we're, we're, we grow up to believe that we should become fiercely independent. We should break away uh, and make, make our own way in life, break away from our family and, and have a go at it ourselves. And um, the more independent you can be, the better you're doing at life. But that is, that is immensely challenging in, in, in our walks with God. Uh, I can find that on a daily basis, I, I may have spent some time in prayer, some time in the word, and I can go on and do the rest of my day my way, in, in, in my willpower, feeling like um, I have the energy and the strength to do what I want to do with that day. But it's quite an illusion, really, when you think about it. We're not so independent. We really are like children. Do you realize how, many, how much of our life we spend sleeping? Do you realize how desperate we are for food and, and water? It, it's crazy when you think about the oxygen that we need just to breathe. We're not, that, we're not that self-sustaining, are we? God, God gives us the whole creation because we need it and we're alive moment by moment because he deems it so. We really are dependent on him for every minute of our existence. But it is beautiful to see that God has this heart for us as children and he wants us to approach him with that childlike belief and faith that he's got it all planned out for us and he wants us just as we are now let's look at the rich ruler in contrast to our humble childlike faith what's Jesus asking for here he's asking for a faith that has sacrifice to it verse 18 a ruler asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone. It's worth taking a moment just to unpack that. Uh, this, this ruler, we don't know too much more about him than he's clearly someone powerful, clearly has a lot of wealth. He decides to address Jesus as good teacher, and that absolutely smacks a very obvious, clear flattery. Um, it, was, it was well known in Jesus' day that uh, other rabbis would say, the only thing that is good is the law. So to call a human, to call a a teacher good was outrageous. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to drive the ruler's flattery back on himself, back towards God, and help him to realize human goodness, what we, the standards we set for ourselves are really quite rubbish when we set it next to God's perfect standards. And there's actually something very important about Jesus saying that only God is good, because guess what we know? Who is Jesus? He is God. So actually, the ruler was correct. Jesus is good, because he is God. But Jesus doesn't let the ruler get away with calling him that as an accident. He wants the ruler to see 
that if you're going to call me Lord, if you're going to recognize me as God, you have to do what I say. You have to follow me and you have to be prepared to give it all up. Let's, let's look at what Jesus asks of him. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Verse 21, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So it's important to see this the right way. Jesus isn't telling him that the right way into the kingdom is to obey all the commandments, isn't to attain to some higher level of righteousness, to just do a little bit better. That's not it at all. He's presenting an additional test to his heart. Okay, you think you're a good man. Well, would you be prepared to give it all up and do what I tell you? Would you be prepared to see that the real fulfillment of the commandments, the real thing that God asks of us, is his utter trust and faith, that everything we have from him is to be a blessing to those around us. And that really stumbles the ruler. That's why Jesus' test, that's why Jesus' insight into each of our hearts is so specific and yet so clever. This isn't a commandment that Jesus is asking for all of us, for us to give up everything to the poor. This was specific to show that the ruler was in fact not loving God. What does it say in verse 24, Jesus, uh, sorry, 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus has actually exposed that the man's priorities, the ruler's dreams and hopes in life, was the storing up of his wealth, was the comfort, was the enjoyment that comes from those things. It was a challenge to his faith. It was on an equal or greater level than his devotion to God, was all his stuff. That's why he was so sad at the prospect of having to do something different with it than he expected. And don't forget, very importantly, that Jesus says as part of this test, come follow me. See, it's never about what we do or don't do. The kingdom, Jesus, it is always about relationship. It is always about seeing ourselves in our standing to Jesus as king. We're children to him and he's given us everything. So we respond in that kind of faith that says, have it all back. It's all on loan from you anyway. This is uh, very stumbling and outrageous for the crowd to hear, for the disciples to hear as well, because they ask in verse 26, uh, who can be saved? Because as, as we can still be tempted to think today, material blessing, wealth, provision, everything set, security in life, that must be a sign of God's favor, right? That must be a sign that God loves us, that we are blessed. We've got everything we could possibly want. So how can this man who's got all that actually be told by Jesus, you're not loving God at all? Well, Jesus responds with what is impossible with man is possible with God. What does that mean? Is, is Jesus talking generically about if we want to achieve something in life that seems really hard, we can do it with God? Now, Jesus is talking specifically about the, the need for a new heart, the need for a spiritual rebirth, for a divine reordering of our priorities. The problem with wealth, the problem with being as comfortable and living as luxuriously as many of us do, 
is not that it's sinful in and of itself, is that it is a great responsibility to steward correctly, to share it wisely, and to make wise investments for the kingdom. We don't store up treasures here on earth. We store up treasures and rewards for ourselves in the next life. That's the real slippery temptation with having stuff that we enjoy, is that it keeps our minds and our hearts fixed on just this life. And we can forget that there's another life we're living for, where Jesus says, you will be repaid, you will receive many times more in that life to come. And that kind of heart change, that kind of reordering of priorities that goes against the grain of our entire society, which is set up to increase your wealth, really needs a work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's impossible with man. No one ever naturally wished that they could love God and give everything up. That takes a work of God. That takes a miracle of the heart. But that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us into the kingdom with, that sacrificial faith that only comes from him. But he doesn't just leave it there. There's a blessing that comes from it too. Peter speaks up in typical Petery way. See, we have left our homes and have followed you, Jesus. Aren't we good, right? We've, we've done the right thing. Yes, Jesus, we've, we've done sacrifice like you want. And Jesus is patient with them. Yes, truly I say to you, this is verse 29, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That is a wonderful blessing. That is a wonderful promise of God that as we continue to ask for his renewing of and transforming of our mind, as we set God's priorities as our own, as we seek him, we'll be taken care of and also we'll be storing up for ourselves unimaginable rewards and repayments. It's very hard, isn't it? I, I struggle with this a lot to think what more can I be giving up? What more can I be sacrificing to God? I quite enjoy uh, my comforts. I quite enjoy the things he's given me. But when this is the reward to look forward to, and when Jesus himself gave up everything, then we really can ask ourselves, why aren't we giving up more? Because as we'll look at in this next section now, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice in our place. Verses 31 and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Uh, the disciples aren't just dumb they just really can't believe that Jesus' plan was to go and die. They kept wanting to believe that the Messiah was a conquering king who was going to uh, ride into Jerusalem and blast the Romans off the face of the earth and restore the kingdom in some physical way. But Jesus' plan was so much more eternal and so much more good news for the entire planet forevermore that he would trade that place to pay for that goodness that is the perfect standard of God that we could never live up to and take it for us. Now, I was learning this week about a man, Sir John Lang, and his building company. Um, 
It's quite an amazing story, really. I'm, I'm probably not getting many of the details right. You can look it up yourself. But his, his building company was responsible for setting up, after the war, motorways, power stations, churches, houses, schools, hospitals, many of which we see around us today. He pioneered the plans, which meant that lots of these things could be built quickly, and we're probably living in his, his design, uh, a lot of us right now, really changed the face of the, of the country with his building. He was a Christian, and uh, so the story goes, when he passed on, uh, his, his bank account only had 300 pounds in it. But today, there is the, uh, the Lang uh, Charitable Trust, which has many millions of pounds stored up from his efforts, from his work, from his savings and investments, which now exists to bless Christian work um, around the country and, and beyond. They invest in all sorts of things, uh, community projects, youth and children's work, welfare and education. Uh, and it's just uh, amazing to think how uh, one man's living sacrifice has meant generations worth of blessing and growth and funding for an uh, unimaginable amount of, of Christian endeavors. And that's just one example of what it can look like when we commit what we have to God and we say that we're living not just for this life, but for the life to come. Now, it's, it's empowering and motivating when we feel like we're struggling to have that childlike faith, when we feel like we're struggling to express our need for him and our dependence daily. When we are honest with ourselves, there's certain things we quite want to cling on to in our, in our life. Jesus himself is our motivation and the realization of our faith. He went to the cross and he paid the price and he rose again to unite us into the kingdom which is growing forever. Let's look at the third way in which Jesus is inviting us in, not just with a sacrificial childlike faith where there is a promised reward, but also a desperate faith that brings renewal and rejoicing. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So this is a very uh, interesting place that the, the, the man has set himself up. But just think about this, this man's life for a while. We assume he was blind from birth at least a very long time. He was now utterly dependent on people to guide him and place him. He was dependent on begging for his livelihood. And that, that is uh, uh, the life he was living. And, and what did it mean to encounter Jesus? It meant a total life change. It meant a total reversal, and not just in the physical sense. Because he saw Jesus for who he was as the son of David. That is a very royal title. That is a very kingly title. It's much more stronger. It's much more passionate than just a teacher. It's someone who he sees as having the power to actually help him and save him. He cries out with that desperate faith. And there's actually a, a change of word in, in the Greek. In verse 38, he's, he's crying out. He's shouting. But in verse 39, where we have in our English, he cried out all the more, that's actually such a stronger term. He's gone from shouting to yelling at the top of his lungs to screaming. And it would, it would have given everyone in the crowd cause 
to pause and wonder what is going on with this person. And Jesus responds to that. He, he stops his talk, talking, he stops his walking, and he, he acts. He hears this man's faith. He sees him for who he is, someone desperate for him. And Jesus asks in verse 41, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Or equally, that can mean your faith has saved you. So it's that desperate faith, that realization that only comes from a conviction of the Spirit and a, a seeing Jesus for who he really is, our Savior who loves us, that brings us to that place of renewal. And not just a physical renewal, not just a reversal of the brokenness that we're experiencing in this life, not just a change of priorities in our lives, but also an eternal renewal. Notice that it says in verse 42, he recovered his sight and followed him. It wasn't enough just that he could enjoy life his way now. It wasn't enough that he could uh, fulfill all his dreams and all the things he would imagine that he could do when he was blind. No, he decided that his newfound life should be dedicated to Jesus and that he would spend every energy of his being repaying Jesus for that wonderful work in him. So it's a, a renewal that comes physically in this life and spiritually forever. And it's also something that catches other people up in its amazement. This is the bit that absolutely astounds me the most. This is the highlight of the entire section for me. Just the last little half a sentence, right at the end, verse 43. He followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. See, that's just amazing. We're not, when we're thinking of our relationship to Jesus, when we're thinking of the kingdom, it's not just an individual thing. It's not just a one-to-one -one thing. As people witness the miracles that Jesus has done and is doing in our life, as people see the blessing that's coming from our childlike faith, from saying no to what the world says yes to, from receiving our inheritance as we go with him daily, other people are, can't help but notice, and they're going to get caught up praising as well. You see, this kind of faith in Jesus, this kind of invitation to the kingdom brings not only renewal, but rejoicing. People who initially were rebuking him and shushing him, <laughs> telling him, shut up, I'm trying to hear Jesus's teaching, were now praising God that they had witnessed a miracle, that this man had his sight back, and that everyone was so much more amazed by the power of Jesus and wanted to follow him for themselves. That is the glory that, has, that awaits us in the kingdom. That is the celebration, that is the party that's been going on for eternity past and will grow infinitely into the future. Is that something you're a part of? Can you celebrate with joy today that Jesus has saved you and you are following him with rejoicing? And is that something, if you're not a part of that, why not? What's not to like that you can join in the celebration that's always been going on. The man asked for mercy. He recognized there was something missing in his life. He needed something more. And we all have a story to tell, don't we? When I was at the end of the second year of my time at university, uh, there was a, a gap of a few weeks before I was going back home to my parents. I had nothing else to do. Term had ended, all the clubs had ended, and um, I was just sort of living on my own and having lots of free time. 
And it was, it was in that period where I uh, realized I'm nearly finished with my degree. I uh, don't know what I'm doing with my life, as many students will relate. And the future really scared me. And I, I'd, I'd, I'd gone to church all my life, but I wasn't particularly following Jesus at that point. I was quite distant from his people in the church. And, and, and he really reminded me in that moment that like a parent, he has a plan for my life. He has a journey that he wants to correct me back onto. And it took those few weeks of just realizing, actually, I, I do want Jesus. Actually, I do want his plan for my life. I do want to follow him. And I just realized I need to pray. I need to read the Bible. Um, and that's all I wanted to do. And I would watch lectures and sermons online and research. And it was the, it was the desperate call and the cry of my heart was, Lord Jesus, I really want you more than anything else. I'm so prepared to say no to the rubbishness of this life. Treasuring up my own kingdom is going to end in nothingness, really. I, I need you and I want you. And that led to such a course change. That led to such a redirection in my life. Because when I came back from my third year, I started coming here to servants. And I really got involved again with um, the Christian Union at UEA. And I really felt like God had brought me back to a childlike faith and a desperate need for him every day. So it, it's a challenge to wonder if we've lost that as we've grown mature in the faith. But this is part of our story. This is what we are sharing with people as we are living examples of his miracles when he's taken us from being spiritually blind and desperate and in need to people of the promise, to people who have an amazing story to tell. So let's share those stories. That was just a part of my story of what Jesus has done and what he's continuing to do. It's almost like everything was back in color. All the church services I would go to, all the things people would say and reading the Bible, it didn't really make much sense before. It was kind of boring. But then it was like going from black and white to being in color. Suddenly it was alive. Suddenly there was music. Suddenly there was joy in my heart. So I'm just going to leave up on the screen Ephesians chapter 5, a few verses that I think really capture what it means to be invited by Jesus into the kingdom in this way, a childlike, a sacrificial, a desperate faith that brings reward, renewal, and rejoicing. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And if that's not you this morning, if you don't feel like you have any idea about the kingdom or your relationship to Jesus, he is inviting you in. He wants you for you. And he says, come, come. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we're just reminded again of your awesome and amazing sacrifice, that you didn't consider your equality with God something to be clung onto, but instead you descended to be a human one of us, and you took the price upon your own back for the sin and for the brokenness that we all share. You paid it, Jesus, in full, and so we are free to just come to you like children to parents. We're free to just run to you in faith, Lord, in trust, and you will not hurt us. You will not abandon us. You really have adopted us in. 
And thank you, Lord, that what we are prepared to give up for you in this life, you will reward us many times more in ways we can't even see yet. And Lord, we trust that as we are real with each other, Lord, and as we're real with this world, that you will grow your kingdom. Nothing can stop it, Lord. Hell will not overcome it. And more and more people, we pray, will come to join in the celebration and rejoice along with us. So we pray and ask, Lord, that you knit our hearts together as one in the kingdom, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And I pray and ask for the rest of today for your people, that we would have a growing sense of our need for you. And as we go into this week, that we could bring our whole lives before you and remember again just how much you've done for us. We love you, Jesus, and we ask you to do a fresh work in each of us. We give you this day, we give you our lives. In your name, I pray.